and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I am your host, Mitch Oliver, and today I am joined by returning guest of the show, Scott Hamilton, and first-time guest, Adrian B. Grand. I specifically chose both of these guys to join in on this week's conversation on one of the most controversial films of all time, Sallow, or The 120 Days of Sodom. This was a really great conversation, and I'm already looking forward to the day where I can bring both of these guys back on the show. But before this episode begins, I'd like to give a special thank you to anyone who has checked out the last episode, which was Fantasy Oscars Part 2, which is a three-part crossover series with Daniel Epler of Cobwebs, a gothic cinema podcast, and Inside the Sequel, hosted by Chris Hurtado. Both episodes have been a complete blast, and I would just like to remind anyone who may have missed it that Part 1 is currently available on the Cobwebs podcast feed, and that episode covers the years 1990 to 1999. I'm also going to share some exciting news regarding next week's episode of The Terror Table. On episode 202, Kyle, Boozy, and myself will be welcoming special guest Monroe Chambers to the show. Monroe has been a working actor since he was nine years old, and his credits include Degrassi, The Next Generation, Knuckleball, Helmington, Harpoon, and the incredible post-apocalyptic genre film Turbo Kid, in which he plays the starring role of The Kid. This episode has already been recorded, and Monroe was an absolute treat to talk to, so make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Lastly, we'd like to offer a quick word from this week's sponsors, which is from Highway Snow Zone, Saskatchewan. Snowplows pull over every 10 to 15 kilometers for you to pass safely. Treat snowplows the same as you would an emergency vehicle. If a snowplow is pulled over and has lights flashing, slow to 60 and pass with caution. It's not a race, give some space. Pass snowplows safely. Check the Saskatchewan Highway Hotline before traveling and visit saskatchewan.ca slash snowzone for more information. And with all that out of the way, enjoy this week's episode of The Terror Table. What's up, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Terror Table, a horror movie podcast that is presented by the Saskatchewan Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts. My name is Mitch, and you hear from me every single week. I normally have other. I normally have another two co-hosts, Kyle and Boozy, but uh, they are away this week. But I welcome. I'm welcoming some very special guests for this episode. Uh, we have returning guest and Terror Table Hall of Famer Scott Hamilton, film programmer at the Broadway Theater. But Scott's been on numerous episodes of the Terror Table at this point, and it's always a blast having you at the table. Uh, and we are also welcoming first-time guest Adrian B. Grand. Adrian has been Hello. a freelance. Adrian B. Grand has been a freelance music journalist for the past twenty years, and has written for Decibel Magazine, Rolling Stone, NPR, Spin, CBC, and MSN, among more. He also works with the Juno Awards and the Polaris Music Prize, and is a voter for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's also a huge movie nerd, with horror movies being the gateway to this art form. So we're incredibly excited to welcome Adrian to the show. How's it going, Adrian? Good. Thanks so much for having me. This will be fun. Yeah, I've been. Uh, it's funny. I've been wanting to get you on the show for a long time because w- when we started getting guests around the city, like Craig Sillifant and uh, Tyler Baptist, among people, they they've always mentioned you should talk to Adrian B. Grant. He's a good guy to get on the show. Like he would be an awesome fit. And then when I recommended this episode with uh, to Scott, I was like, should we get Adrian? And he was like, 
oh, absolutely. He needs to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> I can't wait. Really, I was relieved to actually, because I didn't know 100% whether you had a history or not with this, this title, Adrian. It's just, I know that you also have like an art house background and everything like that. So I figured you likely had at least a strong opinion on it. Oh, very much so. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're going to get into the, our main feature conversation this week is going to be on Salo uh, or 120 Days of Sodom, uh, which is an episode that I've been wanting to do for a long time. Uh, this was my first time watch. And this came about when Scott and I had one of our many hour long conversations at the Broadway theater when we were showing films. And uh, we started talking about like really boundary pushing movies and uh, controversial films and Salo was at the forefront of that conversation. Uh, so I know you have a deep history with Salo, so we're going to get into that and we'll learn all about Adrian's thoughts as well in the main feature. But before that, I want to focus on getting to know Adrian a little bit so people can have an idea who our guest is. So Adrian, you have been writing for how, how long have you been writing for? Oh, yes. Yeah, since, oh, since I was a teen going back to the eighties, but I didn't get serious about it until the late 90s, and then I kind of fell into the whole music writing game uh, around 2001, and I started to realize, oh, wait a minute, you know, maybe I can do this. I don't live, I, like, I, did, I never lived in a major urban center, but with the onset of the internet, um, it didn't really matter anymore. And so with the uh, increasing popularity of uh, online music websites, yeah, around you know 99 2000 i was going well i could probably make this work and i just started doing it for fun and i hooked up with uh pop matters which is a really good website and uh it's just snowballed from there i just worked and worked and worked and people came knocking on my door uh, started with the decibel magazine in 2005 i think and it just led to more and more opportunities and I basically was able to ride that wave as long as I could and uh, built as big a career as I could because it's not easy being a freelance writer. So now I've kind of scaled back a little bit. I still do the writing, but I, I, I'm really enjoying doing the background stuff with the Juno Awards especially. And um, no, I, I'm able to still keep my foot in the door a little bit. But uh, yeah, I just uh, got the day job now, which is it brings a lot more security. <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, always been a music and movie nerd and it never leaves. Yeah. Yeah. I'm picturing like uh, I'm picturing you as a young Will William Miller from Almost Famous. Do you have any Almost Famous stories? Um, did you ever uh, go on the road, go on the road with Iron Maiden? I did. And... What? I, I've been on the road with um, a few bands. I was uh, the craziest assignment. Well, I've said some crazy ones like. One was going to Sweden for the weekend in 2006, and where I was, uh, it was for the band Therian, the symphonic metal band Therian, and uh, they flew me out for a junket. Uh, I spent like 18 hours traveling uh, on no sleep. I had to interview the band, listen to their new record, but at the same time, they put us up in this swanky yacht hotel. And then I spent another night in an abandoned, or not abandoned, it's a um, really old mansion owned by a uh, Swedish um, aristocrat, a baron. Wow. And so yeah, it, that was my first taste of, of, of actual, the jet setting part of it. <laughs> Going to, like, it was my first time in Europe and it was like for a weekend. 
it was so fleeting and it was like a whirlwind and that kind of put the bug in me even more. So, yeah. And I've been on the road with, uh, I went on the road with, um, uh, pagan metal bands back in 2008, which was huge fun, huge eye opener, went through the whole Northeast States covering them like, like almost famous, but, uh, what almost famous uh, doesn't show is the, the mundanity of it all. Yeah. And you get to find out, okay, it, there's a lot of hurry up and wait going on. And you're, it's like nine people on a tour bus. And <laughs> there's no, there's, there's nowhere to, for you to have space to yourself. And uh, sleeping is sketchy. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it was fun. And uh, no, and I got to, I've, I've talked to so many um, of my favorite bands. And I got to meet Iron Maiden in person. I did two cover stories with them for Decibel. I got to interview Rush, another one of my favorite bands. So it's, holy shit! It's it's uh, it's been yeah, nothing short of amazing. But at the same time, as glamorous as, as it sounds, it's uh, being a freelance music journalist is ninety nine percent solitary. So yeah. you're you're pulling long hours, working all alone, you know, just for that little tiny one percent of fun. So you yeah, have, no. yeah, you have to be really dedicated to it. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And like, yeah, so you you have a deep rooted connection with metal music in general, hey? So like, you're you're just a huge metal fan, and that's kind of what brought you to all of these acts. Yeah, that's it. Was my first interest when it came yeah. to music. Like this is like eighty three, eighty four, going back to, and um, yeah, I, like my taste broadened. Like my tastes were always broadening at the same time. I listened to everything. But uh, when I was getting into the music writing in the early 2000s, um, the metal scene was still very print oriented. So th because of that, it, and it still depended on the sale of physical media, it, w it wasn't the dying industry yet. And so there were still record labels throwing money around, which is why absurd as it was in 2006, I was flying to Europe and 2008, the same thing. And um, I'm glad I got, like I said, I'm glad I hitched on to that last wave of uh record label excess and because that doesn't exist anymore and uh yeah um i i had a friend who told me back in 2003 i think if you uh, he told me if you focus on one style of music you're gonna go far and so i said well let's let's start covering metal a little more and pop matters was the first um sort of mainstream website to embrace um the current metal music because uh sites like uh oh pitchfork and uh other ones at the time um didn't really follow through until around 2005 or six or so but yeah. uh yeah we, so I, I was proud to you know have an editor at pop matters who was able to say yeah let's let's start covering more metal music and that just opened the door to so many cool things that i was able to do and yeah it's uh it, it at the same time you risk burnout so uh, um when by the time you've heard the 10,000th you know metalcore band you're going why am i doing this <laughs> yeah and you or, or that would yeah. that would have been at a time like that that was my era like i was 18 years old when uh, in 2008 and uh, that's when like metalcore was just taking over the entire it's like every single person was in a metalcore band i was in oh, a metalcore band yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was insane yeah, yeah and, and it, everything it, just it, starts kind of sounding the same I oh, was in a metalcore band and nobody liked us. 
<laughs> I still saw lots of Adeline shows at the time, though. It was funny. <laughs> oh, I yeah, and I love Adeline. Yeah. But but, but <laughs> at the at the time, I I mean, I remember that era as being a time when finding a a place for us to fit was a was a very difficult. I don't even think I, I'd call it frustrating. I just I was very conscious of the fact that we were not fitting in at the time. Yeah, yeah. It's it's gotten to the point now. To this day, um, I have a like this visceral re reaction to when I hear metalcore music, and I I, I just want to just run away. Like I've seen so many metalcore bands and and heard so many of that stuff, and 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 like even a band like At the Gates, I, such a great band, but I can't. <laughs> it's because it's so related to the medical explosion i can't fully enjoy at the gates anymore because it sounds because they've been copied thousands and thousands of times yeah. so but yeah but that that's the danger um you wish to get all the advanced music like that's the dream as a music nerd to to yeah. the point where like i like i was getting oh a dozen cds every day back you know, by 2009 and I'd have mountains of CDs and I was going, oh, wait, I can't really keep up with this. And I tried, <laughs> I tried to write about as many new releases as I could. But in the like it, uh, be careful what you wish for, because it uh, uh, it, it can be draining. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm really happy to have a much uh, lighter uh, workload on the writing side. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Just uh, like I know this is kind of a loaded question. I don't know if you'll be able to answer it off the top of your head. But do you remember the first metal album that like changed everything for you? Yeah, um, there there's a handful. In, it was all in um, beginning in 1984. Probably Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. That was first. Then uh, Twisted Sister, Stay Hungry, Rats Out of the Cellar. But then by fall 1984... I had been reading all the metal magazines more and more and I bought um, Slayer's Haunting the Chapel just because the cover looked cool. Still does. And, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was uh, really taken aback because I, could, I couldn't believe how much they sounded like Venom. I was going, oh, Hit Parader was wrong about these guys. They sound like Venom. And, and But then it got its hooks in me and that's where the whole... Um, Obsessing over thrash metal and underground metal in the 80s started yeah. and coupled that with, you know, bands like Iron Maiden and Wasp. And uh, I, I was set like I, yeah. I, I cannot I cannot. And I was like 13 and I, I cannot emphasize how cool it was to be a teenager with this explosion happening all around me. And that's yeah. basically what got me through the 80s was following this with a huge obsession. And I, it never even fathomed to me. Uh, I, it was unfathomable. And uh, no one ever told me I could make a career out of this because that's all I was interested in. You know, uh, uh, 80s metal and horror movies as a teenager. And but it took me until, you know, I was 29 when I realized, oh, wait a minute, I could make this work. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And you, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned that the, the artwork for Slayer caught your eye. And I always like there's an obvious correlation between metal and horror movies. And yeah. so like, I want to kind of transition into that a little bit. So you were a young metal head and obsessing over metal and horror movies. Like where did, where did the love for horror begin? What, what was the cool cover that got you in horror? Um, what got me into horror was Halloween. We didn't have a VCR in 1983. 
So we would go to the video store in PA, Prince Albert, and uh, rent a player and then get a couple of movies. And me and my brother said, let's get Halloween, Halloween 2. Yeah, okay. And uh, it, like Halloween 1 was, was just so scary. Watched it in the middle of the night, me and my little brother. Uh, again, that, 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 that lit a spark inside me. And uh, yeah, I, uh, from then on, I was just all over any slasher movie I could find in the 80s. And, 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 like, and it, it, it went hand in hand with metal music. It was a form of, of escapism. And uh, uh, dealing with a very, very tough life as a as a teenager back then. That that's kind of what why I still watch horror movies just to latch onto that feeling of just you know take take me away from this. And there's something fun about horror movies. I can't. It's uh, something I don't know. Liberating. It's it's strange. Uh, it, the, the the adrenaline rush. Yeah. No. And 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 and, and like metal music my my taste in horror has evolved like i'm 50 years old now and uh i'm looking for like i'm i'm both looking ahead to really cool horror that's coming out now but at the same time i'm i'm going um back and finding more movies that i missed out on in the 80s like um herschel gordon lewis mm. like uh, uh um i saw blood feast and 2000 maniacs like just last october and i I was just that that was like (laughs) one of the greatest couple of the greatest movies i've ever seen and 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 yeah and now i'm currently obsessing over i've watched black christmas the original black black christmas and slumber party massacre i cannot believe how just wonderful and tight those movies are and uh that that brings me back so yeah I'm, i'm going all over the place with this um but yeah like the 50-year-old in me loves the um, more understated horror like Polanski or, uh, uh, or even Cronenberg. But uh, yeah, the, the, still those classic 80s movies, Maniac is another. Just oh. uh, the greasier the possible, the, the, the greasier the better. So, what, <laughs> and, so what, uh, did, what did, what did yeah. you think of the remake of Maniac then? It was pretty cool. Um, yeah. it, I, I, I prefer the the sweatier, filthier ver- mood of, of, uh, the original, the but there was a great mood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, um, the, uh, the remake was more detached and, but I kind of liked, uh, uh, what Elijah Wood did with that. Yeah. Hey, I, thing, did, I really did, dug it. Yeah. Did you guys both see, um, abducted in plain sight when we played at the, at the festival, the documentary? I saw it right, I saw it right after I, I, I wasn't available to go I couldn't go to that screening that night, but I did see it right after. Did and... you? Okay. That it blew me away to find out that the main, uh, the girl that that movie's focused on, she's in the maniac remake. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. She I gets, didn't she, know that. Yeah. <laughs> she gets, uh, and it's funny cause it was our old co-host, uh, Diego. He had watched abducted in plain sight just out of nowhere. And then he randomly thought he's like, okay, I got to find another movie to watch. And he put on the remake of maniac and he's like, I know this. Where do I know this woman from? And he looked it up, and it's her. So it's like, after watching that bizarre, crazy story, and then seeing her get scalped by Elijah Wood, like, <laughs> what are the chances that that's the movie you're going to put on immediately following? Yeah. that's so bizarre. Yeah. It, oh man, I couldn't get over that. It's just fucking nuts. But yeah, so like, that's that's awesome that you're going back and you know 
building a love for for movies that have been around forever but like you said that your your taste has grown and uh it's always it's very broad and i know that you do have a big love for like the art house style of horror which is i know a thing that both scott and i really love as well what are the ones that have stood out to you recently or the ones that really got you into that style of horror movie oh man um well i was just like uh, it was going to the um saskatoon fantastic film festival um that it, it introduced me to, to like uh, this new generation of uh, uh, horror filmmakers. And even like, I, I, I think the first one that I went, Oh, this is amazing. Is um, the innkeepers, oh, uh, the Ty West movie. Um, John Allison had screened that and I went to it and I thought, well, that is as good a haunted house movie as I've ever seen. Then you're looking at, you know, the more quote unquote mainstream ones, like it follows and the witch in midsummer and it's really cool that those are getting really big distribution it's cool to know that um these young filmmakers are are be, are able to get their movies out there and um i can't remember her name but uh the woman who uh, had the two movies screening at the film festival last year uh, amelia amelia moses i was actually just amelia moses yeah. yeah um uh those two movies that they screened i the titles escape me. <laughs> uh, bleed, bleed uh, with me and bloodthirsty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, bleed with me, especially. Was that the the, uh, the two friends in the cabin? Me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That the one that she wrote and directed was so jaw droppingly good. And yeah. she's a Canadian. She's a woman director, and that is a super exciting talent to keep yeah. an eye on. Like I, I was so blown away. Yeah, I totally agree. The best part about the film festival every year and this year or last year was particularly special for first time directors, like first features and seeing like what we have in store for us in the future is just like it's so exciting because there's a lot of amazing new talents that are coming out. Uh, do you do you remember like what some of your favorites from the festival this year? Oh, man, I have to look at the lineup. I saw so many movies. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a loaded question. Sorry. <laughs> we already talked. We already talked about Bleed I, With Me and Bloodthirsty. What did you see? Uh, My Heart Can't Beat Unless You Tell It To? Yes, it, that was interesting. It was so sad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, uh, but uh, Patrick Fugit, right? Yeah. Is yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was so understated. And uh, I really enjoyed that. It was anything that is an unusual take anything that's that takes on horror uh, with a really unusual or uh, um, kind of off the grid way really attracts me. And, See, that's, uh, inter- but, that's interesting to yeah. me that you bring that up because you were talking about how like you cut your teeth on slasher films but only got back around to something like Slumber Party Massacre recently. I think it's yeah. a really that's a really interesting thing because as a teenager the likelihood that you would have been able to appreciate the level of satire and uh what's going on in that film like i mean as an adult i think you're more well equipped to appreciate a film like slumber party massacre so it's it is it's it is kind of funny how like uh you know like even a even a film like that is something that um there, there, there is a, there's an argument to be made that it is within the pantheon of these, you know, thinking persons horror films. Oh, it, it is. And uh, um, uh, Slumber Party Massacre, again, directed and written by a woman. It's an yeah. oddly feminist movie. 
I don't even oddly I think it's it's that like I mean it's odd that it got pushed through because the industry was so averse to letting women have a voice at that point in time like it's it's odd that it and it was able to exist but in terms of like you know the uh, uh, having having a palatable anger and having something to say about it, it it was the perfect it was the perfect thing it's too bad it took culture so long to catch up to it and really appreciate it but yeah, and and the way it was marketed, like even on the Blu-ray today, like it's not marketed as you don't get any hint that it's a, a feminist movie, and uh, it, it kind of focused on the more titillating part, like, part of the title, mm-hmm. or it, but so that's what caught me by surprise. Yeah, and yeah. you're like that's nowadays we're seeing uh, her name is escaping me right now, but the the woman Madeline Sims Fewer who directed he, she co-wrote and co-directed uh, Violation this year that we or last year that we showed at the festival that's that, an oddly like pretty it's pretty out there it's a pretty out there feminist statement in the film uh but it's a it's a perspective that's just really exciting and fresh to be seen yeah a violation was a huge one for me and i just recently saw um promising young woman oh, and i'm so watching good. all the uh, it, it's good but i think violation is better for sure. Uh, yeah, um, and, and I'm I'm looking at yeah. It's nice that promising young woman's getting all this acclaim, but uh, I was thinking violation is does that takes on that topic so much better and with more thought. It's less cartoony. Yeah, uh, and yeah, and it takes on the rape revenge thing with a lot more um, logic, really, and it goes into so much it's, trauma involved before and after. And it, yeah. it's such a riveting movie. It's the most. It's by far the most logical rape revenge movie that I can think of off the top of my head, and that that's obvious. It's a subgenre that I'm I'm not particularly fond of for obvious reasons. Like it's it's tough to watch a lot of those movies, uh, but the way that Violation opened the conversation and it was it was a, a different kind of conversation that we don't hear all the time. It's uh you know more so like the I don't want to give anything away in that movie, but it's just it's not a standard rape revenge story, and that's what I love so much about it. It's it has that clinical approach that it ends up going into that makes the the violent events very sober in a way mm-hmm. that I think that really confronts the audience and especially somebody who I, I kind of discussed this a little bit when we were doing our our you know f- our festival polish up there where we were going over everything and just how I do think that within the horror audience that there are a lot of let's well I'll just call what it is there's a lot of men who i don't think are unpacking all of this as they're watching it and a movie like that really slows it down and puts it on the table in front of you with nothing else there to really think about and uh and it and as as a result i think that's the important thing it's 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 a it's a very sober viewpoint on that stuff yeah totally so what about uh what about you scott what have you been up to in the horror world have you checked anything out recently or have you been uh, well, good. Uh, I've been actually, uh, I, I, my film watching has been kind of uh, screeched to a halt because I was, uh, I was in studio working on a record. I would have been like all last week and a, just a chunk leading up to it. And there was, I, I had been in preparation for this batch of music for such a long time that honestly, like my, uh, I guess maybe, you know what, I kind of buried the lead. I've been watching more movies than ever right now, but just recently that screeched to a halt. Because of this year's 2021 uh, Criterion Challenge, I've been just pounding movies. Like, I, it's, it, it's kind of maybe a little sick 
it's getting it's <laughs> getting unhealthy um, because the list is supposed to allot room for one to watch one film a week. So 52. I have watched I didn't get clued into the challenge until mid-January and I have already watched 38 of my 52 and <laughs> that is also to bear in mind that we're missing eight days there where I was working and didn't watch a single movie so I've been watching a lot of movies now there's definitely some stuff that would fall under the horror canon and and I go out of my way when I'm doing like film challenges to only watch stuff I haven't seen before so I've, I've had my mind blown a number of times over the last month like I've seen some really great stuff and that's the whole point of these challenges I like doing you know I did um, the Scarecrow video challenge in October so that was 31 horror movies I hadn't seen before and that was a lot of fun but like there's a lot of stuff that is certainly genre but not a maybe a ton of horror but I've seen a lot of movies um, like I, I've gotten a brush up on a couple of older Von Trier movies I hadn't seen before, like his uh, his uh, Europe uh, is it a Europe trilogy? Is that what it's called? It has uh, I watched Element of Crime in Europa, um, which are like they feel like I mean Element of Crime especially is more of a noir movie than anything else, but it it's it feels very it feels very genre. That's who it's for. Um, I'm just trying to think of anything. Well, oh, the Phantom Carriage, which is a silent horror film, which really i thought was really striking uh that was from 21 1921 um and uh oh the there was a german film called the cremator which actually is sensible bedfellows with the central review that we're doing today it, it falls kind of into that canon it's kind of not really a horror movie it's not really a thriller there's a bit of satire to it it relates back to fascism like it actually is pretty uh pretty in line with the stuff we're covering today but it, it i think would be something that would probably appeal to horror fans uh jigoku i watched japanese movie from the 60s um which has a lot of very uh <laughs> it starts off it, it all it almost plays like an extended uh after school special um i'm not sure what the moral of it was to be perfectly honest because by the end of it there's a lot of people being punished who maybe don't deserve to be punished but it turns into like uh, you know, circles of hell exploration type film and has some, like, I think people who dug Haozu and stuff like that would really dig it. It's, it's uh, some of the uh, visual setups in it are j j phenomenal. Nothing else yeah. looks quite like it. It was quite good. Um, you you got to get me on, you got to get me on this challenge, Scott, because that's one thing I want to do more of this year too, is you got to teach me about this criterion challenge because I'd love to do that. Oh yeah, we will talk about it at length. Yeah. And also last night, not a horror movie unless you count existential horror, but I saw one of my new favorite movies last night because I'm, I'm, I'm in it. In addition to, I use this as an excuse to, because we were leading up to, to solo, I ended up watching a lot of Pasolini stuff that I hadn't seen before. But um, I've also been picking off a lot of Bergman titles that I haven't seen before, and I watched Winterlight last night. Um, have you seen that, Adrian? I have not, no. Winterlight uh, almost created an uncomfortable unease in my house insofar as I, it was entirely me. Like, like, my, like Kate turned around when we were over and said, well, that was written for you. <laughs> and um, on, honestly, I, 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 I'm, I'm so fresh off of watching it that I don't want to make any claims that are maybe a, a, a little bit too bold. But it's I think is my favorite uh, Bergman film. Um, and you don't get to have a, you know, a day after 
like that very often. So I'm like, I'm still, I'm not exactly buzzing from it because I think it's the most dread I've felt off of a movie in a very long time, just because I felt so seen. I think it's the most seen I've felt by a film since uh, uh, Von Trier's Nymphomaniac, probably. Um, so I'm, uh, I, I'm excited to be hanging out with you guys, but I'm also still stewing in, in some very severe existential crisis after last night. So I've been having a, like, I've been, like, the, the worst movie I saw over the course of this challenge is still probably, like, a three out of ten. And I've watched <laughs> 38 movies, you know, in a couple of weeks. So I've been, I've been having a blast doing it, but you know, those are, those are the ones that would probably fall into the kind of, I guess the, the genre canon. I've been seeing lots of samurai movies and stuff. Lots, tons yeah. of good stuff, though. Awesome. I, I have to, I have to echo uh, uh, Scott's sentiments on the Cremator. It is uh, that that movie floored me. I, I, it, the whole, it's like it was made. It's not very, not a very old movie. Made in the sixties, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it was the, yeah, uh, 60, yeah. So yeah, three or something like that. Sixty nine. Yeah. So oh, sixty nine. Okay. But it, a lot of the, the camera tricks go back to silent era and german expressionism and it just mind-blowing and, and couple that with the um satire of uh, nazism it's uh, uh, so rich and uh oddly funny it is see that has that has something in it that i think is uh, again like i'm i'm unha i'm so happy i had a chance to see it before salo uh, before the salo episode here because i do think it's something that i'll moving forward recommend to people who are saying like give me something in that avenue and uh, i think that i can do that with a sober mind and say like yeah that's definitely it but the but the big thing that it manages to do through a, a few different facets is it manages to be funny in a way that Salo never manages to be <laughs> yeah actually i i kind of want to talk i've been wanting to talk about this movie for about a week now but i knew i wanted to wait to talk about it with you guys because i know i'm pretty sure both of you guys have a, a, a relationship with this film but Scott has a beautiful poster of it behind him right now. It's a beautiful uh, piece of artwork for Last House on the Left, the first Wes Craven film. I revisited it for the first time in, fuck, 10 or 15 years. Like, I saw it when I was way too young to see it or way too young to to understand the, the gravity of that movie and how actually brilliant it is. Like, I've actually, it, for a lot of people, I've heard, I've heard a lot of people say that it's, you know, one of Craven's weaker films. And after watching it again, man, like that film shot up in my list of favorite. He's one of my favorite filmmakers. He's made a lot of trash, but he, uh, but last house on the left was just gnarly and awesome and gross and gritty. And, uh, yeah, I, I connected with it in a way that I've never have. And it's one of those movies. You never think to be like, I want to put on last house on the left. Cause it's such a, it's a draining experience, but, uh, the cast and everything in that, like, what's his name? David Hess um, as, like, the, the leader there. He's just so gross and I, sticky. I, 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 I met Hess at a, at a convention one time. Nicest guy in the world. So, like, he has yeah. he had a really nice energy about him, actually, for somebody who has played the characters he's played. And, I mean, uniformly, I don't think I've ever seen him in anything where, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to shake that guy's hand. He... He was really great. And also in the middle of a panel about because he was in, on a panel with um, Ruggiero Diodato um, uh, for a, what is it? House at the End of the Park. Is that what it's called? The, the one he, he did a movie with Diodato. But um, people were starting to get down Diodato's throat about some of the 
you know, the animal stuff in Cannibal Holocaust, which fair play, like, I'm, you know, like, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to stand by him for that either. But there was a language barrier thing. And it was starting to get a little sad, like he was getting a little picked on. And then all the all of a sudden, Hess seemed a lot more like some of those characters he played. And he kind of took the room over and basically like whipped the crowd into shape and said, like, look, you guys, I'm not going to have you like, you know, I, I think it's on YouTube someplace. Um, I'm not going to ha have you, let you guys walk all over my friend here. And, and, and like, he still had, the, so he like most of the time had this really nice warm energy about it. Like you went up to like shake his hand and say hi. And he gave you a hug. Like he was just really, really nice. But then when it like time came time to become authoritative and start running the room, he, he looked a little bit more like Krug than you'd, you'd care to think he could. Again, it was really, yeah. really interesting guy. That's awesome. I don't know. This is probably an unpopular opinion with you guys here, but I, I, at one point, I thought that the remake was better than last. The remake of Last House on the Left is better. And yes, that makes me cringe now. I see Scott. Scott looks like he. I just shot his parents or something. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just. Uh, it, I think the remake's very good as well. But after watching the original again, I realized all of the things that it's missing, and it's all in the cast and like the grit and style of it, but definitely the cast the cast is just so perfect in the original and in the remake they're just uh, really glossy and kind of cartoony and yeah i just that that's the kind of stuff and i i after watching the the original again i don't like the the changes that they made to the story in the remake um but yeah so what do you what do you guys think about that remake well, uh, to to before you get to the remake, do you realize how you doubled back on doubled back on my my Bergman thing there just now, or do you know that that about Last House? No, Last House on the Left is uh, loosely based on a Bergman movie. It's loosely based on yes. Spring. The structure of it is, is right. Yes. So actually, you you doubled back on the conversation there. Good job. <laughs> oh man, well, no, I, and I'm just saying right now, there's going to be a lot of doubling back this episode because you, I'm. This is the first time in a while where you guys are mentioning titles, and I'm like, ooh, that's something I wanted to talk about on the show for a while, but the mm -hmm. the opportunity has never risen up. Uh, I want to get Adrian's thoughts on the original Last House on the Left and the remake, but uh, I want to circle back to Cannibal Holocaust. Oh, uh, after we're done. So, and I think that's a, this is a good, you guys are great people to have that conversation with. Uh, so I want, yeah, I want to talk about Cannibal Holocaust a bit, but let's, uh, Adrian, what do you, what's your thoughts on the last house on the left film and honestly, remake? Honestly? Yeah. Honestly, I haven't seen the remake. Okay. No. Yeah, that's totally no. fine. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, I've been getting back into early Craven thanks to Criterion channel because, uh, they've been. Well, every once in a while, they'll throw a really old Craven movie in, which is really cool. And they actually did a double feature on the channel with uh, Virgin Spring and Last House on the Left, which is super cool. That is cool. And I, I wanted yeah, to do that I, theater, actually. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I've, uh, yeah, so it's it's been fun rediscovering early Craven because that's stuff I didn't really see as a teenager. Uh, it, it just, frankly, wasn't available uh, for where I was. Um, so, obviously... Nightmare on Elm Streets and stuff like that. Um, all, all of the mainstream Craven stuff was easy to get, but uh, it wasn't until like only recently I've been getting into the his grittier early stuff. And um, Hills Have Eyes is another one that I recently got into last late last year. So, yeah, I missed the remake. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Have you yeah. seen the remake of Hills Have Eyes? No, and I, I'm, I, I'm so reluctant to see remakes. I'm. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it it's 
in most cases it, it it tarnishes the 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 movie it's inspired by and and or, or it, it's it's a kind of kind of an insult i keep keep going back to um gus van Zandt's psycho and i how insulted i was by that movie oh so it, it 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 takes a lot for a, a remake to make me happy and i think the only huge exception would have been um the Suspiria remake from a few years ago which i adored oh yeah yeah it's an awesome yeah. movie See, that's funny because I was, I, I I appreciated a lot about that Suspiria remake, but I was insulted by this Suspiria remake. <laughs> I was just because it's it's so so different. Not because it was so different. Honestly, I felt like that there were a lot of moments. Uh, you, I'm I'm on I'm on record a lot of kind of push having a lot of pushback for not digging what get we we bring this up on every episode that I do with this show, but the the uh, elevated horror. I felt like that was uh, designed elevated horror in a lot of ways. It felt to me in a lot of cases to be embarrassed about being a horror movie. I thought it was very good. I did like it a lot, but I was that's that's funny. I, I'll part company on that one because I did. I liked it fine. I didn't love it. But a lot of the horror guy in me was insulted by that movie a couple times. <laughs> that seems crazy. That's crazy to me, especially thinking about the ending of like the last 20 minutes of that movie. Like it's just fucking blood and like to me, I <laughs> I think There's things Scott I like Hamilton. about it. I like yeah. lots about it. But conversely, uh, in terms of remakes, though, the 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 biggest problem for me about the uh, uh, the the remake of Last House was this is another thing I bring up constantly. I guess I just have a couple of rules, don't I? The thing that bothered me the most about it was for me its redundancy. I don't think that it justified taking the story and doing it over again. It it no. just it made it made no sense to me that they bothered to do it other than that they it made financial sense to repackage an idea that already existed and not go to all the trouble of actually I don't know finding a writer who had something to say and doing all of that artistic work it it made most sense to go like oh this story's just sitting here let's just do this again and that is a cardinal sin for me because I e even when films are made adeptly. Uh, I, I it's not enough for me. Which actually, this this circles back around, and I'll you want, I'll make myself very unpopular right now and say that that ended up being my biggest problem with uh, 2018 Halloween, which I just rewatched. Okay, I, dude, I just watched <laughs> it. I, I just watched it uh, two nights ago. Yeah, I I, mean, I, I, I've, I I have grown to just fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't mean what for did you watch it for that I, I mean I I fail to see the only thing I liked about it I like Jamie Lee Curtis a lot I like that they Sarah Connored her I think that that was cool barely think, but yeah on paper I like that approach other than that I have no idea what what like were I to ask them what what is the purpose how does this expand what 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 does this have how does this benefit Halloween in any way shape or form and I don't think that there would be a concrete answer that would satisfy me to that it was made adeptly because David Gordon Green is I I mean now I don't remember the last time he made a movie that moved me what George Washington uh, but like I mean most of his stuff yeah. I don't really like but. Um, I'm more it it had I watched Mitch you know this I just rewatched all of the Halloween movies yeah and at least some of them were so batshit crazy 
and audacious in their conceit that I can appreciate that they tried to do something. This one, they just very adeptly, the only things that worked about them were pieces that they just had to carbon copy off of the original. So that says nothing to me and that's redundancy. And that bothers me a lot more than like falling flat on your face and being like, just uh, like an inept filmmaker, because I mean, at least that's like Rob Zombie's Halloween. Okay, so that's a big that's a big conversation too. I won't get into that one, but because I could talk about that all day because I like yeah. things about that one actually. But yeah. uh, that that's the thing. I think arguably 2018 Halloween is a better movie, but I don't like it as much. No, well, I I, I still like it more than the Rob Zombie one. But yeah, what were you saying, Adrian? <laughs> oh, it's it, it's a geezer pleaser movie. It, uh, it's a nostalgia movie. And yeah. me and my wife, Stacy, went to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, we went to it at the VIP theater and had a blast, and basically haven't thought about it since. And that's how I view it. You're lucky. It, it was, it was fun. I don't need to see it again. <laughs> and then, see, I think you need to see Halloween again, and like you know, fifty more times. It just keep. This is. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to dominate the conversation with this too much. But the big thing, like I was talking to you, Mitch, off line about this but like the big thing about halloween that makes it continue to tick is it is the best of its breed nothing anything that tries to to be too much like halloween seems like a lesser halloween which includes all of its sequels and unless you have a new like because it is so simple and it's so uh it it's 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 so compact and it doesn't need any more than it's doing and it's constantly towing the line of there not being enough substance there. But that's the thing. It's, it's just that perfect sleek killer. It's it, there's nothing you can't add anymore. You don't want to take anything away. It's just you can't like no one's going to beat that formula. And and so Halloween is a problem. <laughs> it's just the best. It's Tyson. Like, what do you do with it? It's, yeah. it's kind of like a, it's kind of like at the gates and metalcore. Hey, there you go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. That's a, the thing with uh, like. I wish I could just forget and, you know, I've had a good time and moved on from it, but I'm a toxic nerd who just gets <laughs> obsessive over these things. And Halloween is like, like, I just, I'll echo everything that you just said, but, uh, the remake, the, the, the sequel, the 2018 one that I keep on watching it because I'm hoping I'm going to like it more. And it's like the reverse jaws effect for me. Like where every time I watch jaws, I see something new that I love about it. And the re- this 2018 Halloween, every time I watch it, it just falls more and more apart and I start disliking it more. But the thing that annoys me the most about it is how they amped up that they had the, this perfect idea and they weren't going to do a Halloween sequel unless it was it was perfect and groundbreaking and fresh. And then they're like, oh, we're retconning all the sequels. I'm like, OK, that's fine. That's cool. Like, I'm actually totally down for that. Um, I like some of those sequels, but I appreciated that they were going to go and just, you know, try and make their own movie. But they ended up just taking everything from those sequels. <laughs> like, yeah. the, the, there's, the, there was no purpose to retcon those movies because they just recreated so many things about them. And, oh, God, it just frustrates me. It just it, it just <laughs> feels so hollow. I, I, I can't talk about it anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a complicated conversation because, again, it's it's certainly the best made out of all of those movies, like the 2018 one. It's made very, very well. It's acted better than the rest of them. Like, there's good things about it. 
it just says nothing and and doesn't benefit Halloween in any way, shape, or form, no. which is always what you're up against if you're going to do a sequel, certainly if you're going to do a remake. So it's it's tricky. Like, you know, there's a reason we keep finding ways to make Dracula movies because we keep finding reasons to repurpose the tenets of that story and do something interesting with them. And so we keep getting interesting movies out of that. And, like, I don't think that slasher films, as hard as it is to make a good slasher film, and it is very difficult... It's not impossible to continue to find ways to discuss what's going on in society with that as a, you know, with that as a, a primer for it or whatever. But in terms of making the perfect one, like we don't, I don't need. I'm gonna watch the the upcoming Halloween movies, but I, you know, they're gonna have to do a damn sight better convincing me that they have something to say for the next two. Uh, installments for me to you know like not just feel yeah hollow about it i guess mm-hmm. and that's what's annoying is i'm, I'm still excited for the sequel just because like i'm <laughs> hoping it's going to be better but and also just because my brain is just broken and i just like <laughs> need i need to be excited for how like when there's a new anything halloween related i get excited about so and i almost am always disappointed <laughs> um, <laughs> And I've realized now that I think we might go too long today if we uh, open up the can of worms that is Cannibal Holocaust. So I'm thinking maybe we'll just do, if you guys are interested, we could do another episode on Cannibal Holocaust. If that's a movie you'd be interested in talking about. Oh, oh yes. (laughs) Okay. We'll we'll plan to do that in the next couple months here. But uh, yeah, is there anything else you guys want to talk about before we get into Sallow? I I want to talk about Sallow. Yeah, I'm so ready. I've been immersed in this for the past week. So, yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break here, and then we'll be back to discuss Sallow. Stick around. And welcome to our main feature presentation in which we are talking about Sallow, or the 120 Days of Sodom. The film came out in 1975, and it was a first-time watch for me this week. It's something I've always wanted to do, but never... Uh, it's one I, I personally like to always keep a couple in my back pocket that I know are just going to blow me away, or at least generate a, a reaction out of me. Because, you know, the three of us, we watch so many things that... Uh, we become kind of desensitized. And I, that's something that's happened to me for the last 10, 10 years where I just nothing. It's very few and far between the times where I get a genuine reaction from a film. And I got that from this one. So we're going to talk about <laughs> I that. I hope so. It means you have a pulse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm really excited to talk about it with you two like in particular because I know that you guys have a lot more knowledge on this film and the whole style of filmmaking and uh, the era of of these types of films, and I guess I want to start off with an open conversation about uh, about these types of films that people tend to say that they, like this is said to be one of the most depraved films of all time. And uh, how can you want to watch these things? And it's not enjoy like people don't understand watching a movie that might not be enjoyable. Uh, but that's something that I like. Like I, one of the things I love about this movie is that it's. A, it should make you feel sick. It should have that reaction. You should have that reaction. You should, you should almost despise watching the screen because it's so visceral. But what's your guys' history with Sallow? Let's start with Adrian. I also, am, am I saying it right? Yeah. Is it yeah, Sallow? Adrian. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, Sallow or Sallow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Either one. Yeah. Um, I 
heard I forget how I heard about the movie, but I was compelled to buy it on site. Like as soon as I saw the uh, Criterion release in 2008, I bought it. I think I was just getting drawn more and more to transgressive movies, and I just looking for anything to provoke. And I, I still have a real hunger for for that movies and books like that and music. Yeah, it. it I watched it, was horrified, and then, like, I keep going back to it. It's uh, it's it's supposed to make you uncomfortable. I know. Um, there's a guy who does a, a commentary on the uh, DVD, uh, Jean-Pierre Gorin. He's a film director and a film scholar, and he's done a lot of really cool video essays for Criterion and. In his piece for uh, Salo, he says um, it's it's best to watch it every five years because your reaction to it will never be the same, but the experience will always be relevant. And we'll, we'll get into this. We could get into this deeper if you want later on, but um, how this movie is a condemnation of fascism and consumer culture, like it it feels it has felt increasingly more relevant every time I watch it. To the point of 2021, where we're we're knocking on the door of this, like uh, uh, culturally, we're we're like uh, uh, looking at the news today, and uh, America is very very close to this happening. Yeah, and uh, it, 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 this is a, an extremely important movie. Yeah, it's it's horrifying and shocking, but it, it it's uh it's it's as the it's it's a blunt commentary on what happens uh with absolute power simple as that and what about what about you scott i know uh so this is also based on a book is it yes it is it's it's based on a marquis de sod book which is like one of the most notorious tomes in the history of uh literature really um i haven't made it all the way through it to be honest i know adrian you were telling me the other day that you you read it over time correct i i, I read it on the bus going right. to work for two weeks two years ago <laughs> oh, so I was sitting there on the bus reading reading uh, 120 days of sodom and uh believe me solo has nothing on the book the book yeah. is nauseating yeah and and i i, I admire uh Destad's, uh persistence through this project because how anyone could keep writing and keep getting worse and worse and worse like uh, as far as a uh, uh, shocking content goes I, it is it is mind blowing. It is exhausting. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I get arrested and uh, stuck in a Bastille for however many years, and you know, you find the time all of a sudden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't. I I have. I've had it on the shelf for a number of years, and I, I I'm a little embarrassed to say that I haven't read it. I've leafed through it a number of times because it is ap- It's 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 one of the funnest books to pick up to and turn to a random page and just see what's going on. Its size is a little daunting for what it is and i just i I don't feel like i found the right time to read it but it's also structurally uh based a little bit on the well i mean to say based on is maybe a a little much but um it is at least referential to dante's divine comedy as well yeah so so it has a few literary references and then in terms of what the title and the placement is referencing is um how how did this work exactly it was um kind of a, a, a republic that was founded by mussolini uh so you know relatively recent history to someone in in italy in the 70s which was under the protection of the nazi party which i mean 
was what it was showing in terms of just being, uh, as Adrian already said, just absolute power run amok. It was this kind of protected republic. Uh, and uh, so what they were doing is um, he kind of repurposed the tone of uh, 120 Days of Sodom and uh, structurally made it adhere to Dante at least a little bit and used it to comment on contempt, well, maybe not contemporary politics. I mean, both historical and upcoming politics, I guess you could say. I mean, I think that the the problem of that mode of thinking is going to be an ongoing one as long as people exist. So, I mean, yeah, yeah, let's call it contemporary. It, uh, <laughs> so, so I haven't, I, I, I've read, I've read Dante. Uh, I have not read 120 Days of Sodom though. But my, my relationship with this film, it, it, actually, Adrian, I was interested to hear that you didn't see until 2008 either. It was really difficult to track down for many years, I found. Were you looking for it before it was re-released in any capacity? No, it, it's, it's a Criterion release uh, what is how I learned by I learned about how the film existed, yeah. Okay, because I had heard of it prior to that, but I didn't get my chance to see it. I actually, uh, unfortunately, those the folks at home won't be able to see this, but I'll hold it up for you guys. I actually realized as I was sitting here that by my feet in a shoebox, I had this brochure from the uh, All Tomorrow's Parties Festival, the Nightmare Before Christmas edition from December 2008, which was a music festival uh, curated by the Melvins and Mike Patton. And uh, there's a movie theater attached to the venue that this festival took place at. So they programmed the movie theater uh, for that, uh, that stretch. And uh, on the first day, they were showing it at, uh, actually, I think it just says in the back here, the first day they were showing it at, oh my God, it was two in the morning. Uh, I had finished watching the loudest set of music I've still ever seen to this day. It was a band called Porn. I hadn't slept in almost 24 hours, uh, was out of my mind, and then went at two in the morning and sat down in a theater to to watch this movie that I had heard about for years and years and years. And it was provided by Criterion, so I don't know if there was digital or if it was, I, I don't think it was 35, I'm pretty sure it was digital, but um, sat down. And I mean, I kind of felt like I was hallucinating already anyway, to as a starting point to sit down in a theater at two in the morning, sleep deprived. <laughs> having just had my, and I was not wearing ear, hearing protection at all either. Um, just my head was swimming and sat down. I think I missed the first two or three minutes of it, but sat down almost immediately to a bunch of uh, people cruising around abducting children, basically, immediately. And then proceeded to, you know, have this this film, which structurally at the time, especially, I'd never seen anything like it. I still haven't, who am I kidding? But uh, I wasn't sure until I got my own copy of it, it was sometime in 2008 that I had seen everything that I saw in this film because it is so – part of it is I think that – I mean it's the content certainly, but that it is as beautiful and kind of masterfully photographed as it is, I was certain I could not have remembered that properly. The content of the film and the style in which it was captured couldn't adhere. I could not have actually seen that. And sure enough, I've now watched it how many times. And it's a reality. This film is uh, the, the worst in terms of behavior and the best in terms of artistry 
all at once. Uh, so, uh, and, and I mean, it sets a bit of a benchmark in terms of, because it, it then turns into, uh, like for, for me, when I come to films like, uh, I can't remember whether we've ever discussed this in the show or not before, Mitch, but um, something like a Serbian film, which kind of got into the mix in terms of conversation with a lot of people as a comparison point. There was never any comparison to me because that was a dodgy direct-to-video, non-artistic, you know, dive into depravity that didn't do or say anything interesting to me. It will always come back to Salo because it's a film that doesn't says so much and it does it so beautifully. It's it, it, like you. It, well, I mean, I guess it comes back to that remake conversation. Show me something relevant do something that isn't redundant and this film sets that it sets that bar so high yeah yeah and that's yeah. how how we uh first got into this conversation scott is was, i was that yeah i was the one who was like because we were just talking about boundary pushing movies and the ones that just like the, it feels like like for example a serbian film was one that we were talking about and i've seen i have seen that movie and uh, I, I had always been, everyone that I had talked to did the same thing where they would bring up Sal. That's how I found out about Salo and uh, how people are saying that, like, it's the f original boundary pushing, disgusting, completely depraved that actually has a purpose. That's the difference between this movie and a Serbian film is that a Serbian film just feels like it's only out to shock you. That's like the point of the movie is to shock you. And that's not the point of Salo at all, at least not what I took from it. But it's just authentically shocking. And mm -hmm. even all these year, all these years later, now that I've seen it, I I know that I definitely can't compare it to. It's it's very unfair that it gets roped in with a Serbian film and the Human Centipede and uh, shit like that, you know, because it's it's absolutely nothing like that. Uh, it's just they people it, on on a surface level, it looks to be similar, but they're nothing alike. And uh, yeah, that's I, I hate those movies that just try that the whole purpose is to to shock you. It's so easy. It's so easy to to offend someone. And mm -hmm. that like the way that Sallow goes about it, and I know that's based around the book. It's just more well crafted. I mm -hmm. should say you said so you saw this in a the theater. Yes, I did. OK, so I just finished. I watched a YouTube video of a guy who was just talking about it a couple days ago. And I guess he had seen this at uh, a New York theater. It was an art house theater, and they did a double feature of it with Roma. Oh, I've well, and I hold, still have... hold on. Which which Roma? That could be a number of films. It's the the newer one, like oh, the oh, uh, like Alfonso okay. Alfonso Cuarón's uh, Roma, which I still haven't seen, which is disgusting because I'm a huge Alfonso fan. But uh, I still haven't seen it, so I don't know the comparisons that could be made because he was saying, he's like, that seems like the strangest double feature ever, Salo and uh, Roma. But then he said when he came out of it, it was like, that it was kind of perfectly paired, which is so strange. Thematic, thematically, they fit because yeah. uh, Roma takes place in uh, during very huge political upheaval in Mexico. So I, I can kind of see that a little bit. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's just get into it, you guys, because... Uh, yeah, like Scott, you you had some pretty bold statements when we were talking about this, and it instant like instantly when we start talking about, it, it's like, all right, say no more. We're doing an episode on this because I always love seeing that excitement uh, from people, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you had told me that it is a masterpiece in in your opinion, and that's a that's an opinion that I hadn't heard before because I'm generally surrounded by people who uh, haven't been as experienced with these types of this type of cinema. So what about it is 
masterful for you. Okay, well, and I mean, to qualify that, like, I mean, I think it is. That's my opinion. Most, a lot of people would just think I'm full of shit. Um, but it, to me, I mean, in terms of, I, I do think Pasolini was at the height of his power in terms of being a controlled filmmaker. I think that there was, by this point, especially, like, Adrian, you know, when I talked to you, you asked me if I'd seen, so just prior to this, I think that this will feed back into some of the stuff to do with discussion on this. He had just done a series of films, which is kind of called his uh, his trilogy of life. Um, yeah which uh, are all based on some classic uh, tomes. So you've got uh, the Cameron uh, uh, Arabian Nights and uh, Canterbury, Canterbury Tales, Tales. Yeah. which have this energy about them that's, I mean, they're all about sex and a lot of the humor and it's very scatological and like there's a lot of like crossover there, but it has this like lightness about it and has this innocence about it and the sexuality it's a celebration of that type of thing and um he had a very different tone uh to to the work he had done and this in a lot of ways there's a roving about it there's this kind of just kind of body exuberance about it that he then uh, as a reaction seems to have locked down so hard at this point. And, and, and in terms of being a masterpiece, in terms of this being the work of a master, the fact that he had the control to do that, to do that about face and all of the sudden, um, I, he as a filmmaker largely seems to be very like uh, uh, dictatorly all of a sudden, just the, the, the way he controls this film and the way everything that goes on within these rooms seems like such a trial compared to everything else and in spirit to what he had been doing prior to. I, I, I think it's a masterpiece in control and it's a masterpiece in control of of an audience and, and an awareness of what you're doing to an audience and what you're putting an audience through. Um, I think that the, the actual just raw filmmaking is absolutely undeniable i think it, it it is as i as i've said a couple times already i think it's at once just completely abhorrent and beautiful which you don't get away with unless you are <laughs> unless you're an enormous talent so i mean from a raw filmmaking standpoint I, I i would declare it a masterpiece from that but also i do think that it's it's spinning so many plates all at once in terms of being a social commentary that it uh, doing uh, and we'll get maybe into this a little bit later, but an artist doing a self-assessment and reacting to their own work because this did have a lot to do with him becoming disgusted with his own work. And I like that sense of awareness a lot in an artist. So like that, th that's the type of thing that I'm always looking for. So we're doing those things. We're adapting unadaptable literary properties and he's doing them all masterfully all at once i think i to me it's just so unquestionable where does it stop being a masterpiece that's what my question yeah. is i th i think it's i think it's beautiful i think it's amazing and what about you adrian yeah i i totally agree about it's it, how it how it uh contradicts beauty and ugliness is spectacular you look at every scene in this movie like it's like a Tableau is is like a, a classical painting, very Kubrick-like. It's, it's symmetrical, yeah. and everything is carefully posed. There's there's a chilliness to it, but at the same time, you get very, very, very brief glimpses of humanity. And um, yeah, it, it's it's such a, a tough movie to absorb on first watch because it's so detached. There's no character. 
in the movie that the audience can relate to at all. So that makes you instinctively unsettled. You can't relate to anything. And at, by at, the, at the same time, you're complicit in this because you're watching this go, go on with the other characters. And that creates an even more unsettling feeling. And the fact that there's no resolution to this, no answers, <laughs> no solution, you're, you're walking out and you have so much to unpack mentally, but it, it's something that people should be unpacking. To build on that, actually, uh, the like the detachment and having no one to imprint yourself on, because that is a problem that I think that audiences gives me. You know what? It's a problem I have with regular audiences. I'll put it that way. Um, I think that people need to feel like they relate to somebody in order to get into something. They don't want to have to take the ride with, you know, bad lieutenant or something like that. Like they don't want that to be the person that you have to ride shotgun with. But in this particular case, the only characters arguably are these libertines. And, and, and in terms of, you know, being complicit, like you elect to not shut the movie off and continue alongside them and with these complete ciphers that they're uh, so, you know ca causing to suffer which you are never given the space to relate to outside of i mean maybe being able to empathize when they cry but you don't really get a you don't even really get the room to do that you kind of do feel like you you do feel closer to the the aggressors and, and are and are made to feel that way which emboldens my original point of i i I, I don't want to be those people, but Pasolini ensured that I felt like I was sitting next to them. Yeah, and I think that's something and, and that he did. on the couch, not on the floor. That's the yeah. important part. I felt like I was on the couch. I was not on the floor. The, even the scenes where nothing is really happening, where you're not seeing any grotesque, uh, you're actually, you're just hearing about it, and that makes it worse at, at some points, because when you have, like, the... I, I can't remember their names and everything, but the there was a woman who's explaining what she did to a man when she was young and she's just speaking about it like it's like oh yeah this is completely normal this is what you got to do and this is just a part of how how this this uh situation goes and it's like look at me i turned out fine <laughs> and it's like it's so like uh manipulating all of these people and that's what the whole movie is like based on is just this manipulation and you know breaking people down to their core and just using them as actual literal, ob literal and figuratively objects. Yeah, the the, the storytelling is really interesting because uh, uh, you're listening to them, and you know bad stuff's going to happen. It's yeah. it's around the corner, and that dread is often worse than the end result, and th that's uh, it creates an e even more unsettling feeling. That that's a that's a big takeaway, and risk going off onto another tangent. But the way those aging prostitutes are used by the libertines basically these are four pretty impotent men uh, uh, when you look at, at the, the original Dassad book these are supermen with uh, uh, unquenchable libidos but in Salo they have the prostitutes tell the stories to get the men aroused and then they do the bad stuff they're they're even re even though it looks like the prostitutes are in cahoots alongside the libertines they're being used and he dehumanizes as, as well as, as as much as the victims because uh, they're there to tell a story and that's it yeah absolutely and the, yeah that's i'm pretty much i'm gonna just kind of like go off on my a little tangent here about uh just to fill you guys in on what it's like being 
a I'm a 30 year old man who just saw Sallow for the first time. Uh, so <laughs> I, I saw it exactly a week ago from today. And I have thought about it every single day ever since. And uh, it did. I, I It had a profound impact on me. I feel like I agree with Scott, uh, both of you guys, about this movie, even on a first time watch. But I know that I still haven't gotten everything from it. And I am. So that's why I know I will be revisiting it, revisiting it again in the future. And I'm looking forward to that. But I, I want to put some time in between it because I'm still processing from a week ago. And I don't feel like I'm anywhere near uh, the point where I fully, fully have processed the film. And that's why I'm hoping I, I can get some closure here in this episode <laughs> movie. It's just like nearly every type of obscenity that a man can act out. It's it's laid out in this film in with precision and they left no stone unturned. Like it, it just always gets worse. And it's like, hey, have they have they done like literally every fucking awful thing that you can do to a human <laughs> is, is like, are, are they just che- they have a checklist and it's like, it seems like they knocked off every single one. The it's, thing that I really wish I could have... Oh, sorry, what were you saying, Adrian? Oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, uh, I was just going to add that um, those shocking moments, they're either done far away from the camera or semi-obscured or if it's explicit, it's very brief. Yeah. Some of the most notorious scenes make up only a couple minutes. So the, the viewer's imagination just runs wild and that makes it even more powerful but yeah you continue okay no and yeah, yeah I, I i totally agree but like the the one thing the, the regret i have for this film is that like the wish if i could go back in time i wish i could have not have known about the circle of shit because <laughs> you know i've been hearing people i've been hearing people talk about salo for so long and so i've picked up i i kind of knew what to, knew what i knew what i was getting into and I'm really envious of the people who have seen it who don't. And like going into that movie for the first time and just seeing like, you know, when the title card comes up again, where it's switching over to circle of shit. It's like, oh, my God. Like, where where are we going? Like, is are they meaning literal, literal shit? And then, yes, they are. <laughs> That's something I, I really wish I could have not have known about that. But it's still had such I'm so desensitized and nothing really bothers me. And especially like gore or stuff like that, because I'm so interested in the art of effects work. I'm almost never thinking that it's real. I'm always thinking, how'd they pull that off? But I was gagging in the shit scenes. Like It's nauseating. It yeah. is. It's, it's repugnant to look at. And uh, I think some of it has to do with that loving eye that he he uses on everything that he does. He, you know, like filming those scenes with as much care as any other scene in any of his other films is what it comes down to. Again, that's one of the reasons why it's so effective, so much thought and like, you know, an equal amount of effort into the composition and everything like that. Like, I mean, presumably he wasn't gagging and looking away while he was filming it. I, I would, I, presumably he was able to stomach this because I mean, intellectually he was able to stomach, stomach it. So, I mean, I think that's the first, the first part. And I think that, you know, shit to him means a, a, an awful lot in the, in, in this instance. So I think that it's something that he was probably able to do. And, and, and we're lucky that we have, we're, we're lucky that we have Pasolini filming shit for us, as opposed to a lot of other people who have filmed shit in the past. He's somebody who can make it, I don't want to say make it palatable, but because uh, <laughs> I do, I still find that particular circle also very repugnant. I find it very difficult. Um, 
just I, I do think that when a film really gets to you know there's a there's a particular kind of uh you know like uh in jungle scenes in a film when you see people who look unbathed and like it's it, it, they're they're someplace temperate and you feel like you can smell the characters this has that for that entire stretch where like you're getting phantom suggestion in your mind that you're going to start smelling what, what it is that you're yeah. watching and, uh, yeah. and I, I definitely get that 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 exact same thing happened to me i actually like that while i was watching it was i was having such a reaction from it that I was like covering i know it's an audio podcast people can't hear but i was covering my face that never happens to me and then i was like do I smell or is it, is the movie making me think that I'm smelling something <laughs> like it's that it's so effective. And that just, how rare is that where you get the experience to, that you're, you feel like you're getting a sense of smell from a visual, visual entertainment. That's so, so powerful. You, you know, what was uh, uh, worse for me was not even the banquet, not even that it was at the very, right before that, where uh, the young girl uh, breaks a rule. I think she's crying. And the Duke gets mad at her. And he defecates on the floor. Hands her a spoon. And just yells at her. E. He's going, manja, manja. And, and the way he's yelling, it's like any verbal abuse any of us might have had in our lives. Whether it's a boss or a teacher or family member or something, and that, where she's struggling to eat this, and she's she can't bring herself, and she's crying so hard, and and that, uh, uh, not the the banquet's nothing compared to that scene. That that was just absolutely brutal for me. Yeah. And uh, but again, you're looking at power gone mad, and uh, I think that's pretty much the the, the uh, perfect depiction of it. Well, that's yeah. that that's that moment of perfect illustration of that authority kind of uh, deciding to follow its whims arbitrarily and taking out its notions of you know what might feel good because you can get away with it out on someone else in the in the dehumanizing factor of like this is you know my my uh, the, the the pleasure that I seek has has no there's no interest in where that's coming from as long as the pleasure is received eventually and if it needs to be on the backs of a hundred uh, poorer folks that doesn't matter and then watch, watching the I mean I think that the point is that that happens and then the escalation is immediate and so out of control yeah. and and that's that's another um, thing about this movie how modern it feels now because uh, the accumulation of data and information that we have now as desensitized people and the libertines are kind of like neo-enlightenment people and they feel so worldly that they need to be provoked more and more and more uh, to the point where they kind of hit a void and there's nowhere to go after that other than torture and death like it, it follows such a logical process of, of uh, what a, a libertine is really and that's yeah that's like one of the other things that I kind of took from the movie is that these like a lot of people and I, I read some I because I, I just wanted to know the reactions that people are getting. So I was reading through people's reviews on Letterboxd and a lot of people just think that it's unnecessary to make art like this or to put this out. But the thing that's important for people to remember is that these people exist like there are people out there who have kinks for some really strange <clears throat> shit. And this movie is like it's addressing that and it's it's 
focusing on it and not looking away. And it's uh, showing you all of it. Uh, and it, it made me think of, are you guys familiar with the guy who created McAfee antivirus? Oh, you, yeah. I saw a documentary yeah, yeah. about him at the uh, Toronto International Film Festival a few years ago. Oh, man. I need to. I, if you remember what it's called, let me know. Uh, I, I will think of it. I think it's Mc... I think it's his name. It's McAfee, and then there's a subtitle to it. I'll figure it out before we're, yeah. we're on, because so, I'll also recommend it to anyone who wants to. Yeah, he, that that guy is wild. <laughs> yeah, so see, I, I, I only know, like, the Cliff Notes version of it, so maybe you can expand on it a little bit, but, like, that guy was doing the shit that these libertines are doing, but he was hiring sex workers to come and uh, shit in his mouth. <laughs> like mm. that, And he wanted that. And, like, there are people out there who just, like, that's their kink. Like we're at least I actually, I don't know what your guys' kinks are, but I'm so happy <laughs> that I don't have one of those uh, really dangerous ones. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of like, I, I do think that all of the, all of the things to do with this that are uh, the, the thing that is disgusting is forcing whatever it is that you want out of the world on somebody else and getting it at their expense. I don't have any, you know, anyone who is into uh, uh, shitting in each other's mouths as long as everyone's, sh you know, as long as you shake hands first. I don't, I don't care. It's fine. Yeah. Do what you want. yeah. But um, it, it, it's, it's, I mean, the real, as Adrian said, like, it has a lot more to do with the decision prior to that someone wants something and they don't care uh if 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 it uh you know if they need to use your body in order to get it and they don't care whether you want it or not that's that's where the you know the problem lies certainly and um you know like because if you know like it, it i mean it's almost divorced from kink in in at that point right because i mean if uh if all the libertines want it, that doesn't sound that offensive but if she didn't want to she shouldn't have to and that's you know that's that's what it comes down to is 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 the lack of agency that these people have and the extent to which we're forced to watch that humanity strip from them that's the real i think hard part for your whether you identify it or not that's the hardest part to you know wrap your head around as a, as a human and 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 i don't think we think about those things so much so it's easier to say like oh yeah it was really tough to watch you know all of these people being forced to eat shit or eventually being you know branded and tortured and all of this type of stuff like we're abject to that because it you know it offends our sense of uh survival and 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 that kind of thing so on like a an animal level we're we're completely averse to that we don't want that but it doesn't have to do with it uh adrian adrian did he cut out for you too he cut out okay yeah we oh, no. just could, we couldn't hear what you said the last like 10 seconds okay i know i'm good place to start um a lot of what horror is at the end of the day is that agency being taken away i think i think that that and and this this film more than any other film i can think of uh addresses that uh i mean certainly less directly but more realistically because we are put in those positions where we're having our agency compromised and it doesn't mean we're going to you know be killed by a guy in a mask like i mean certainly that compromises our agency but uh it's the long-term killing of a human it's the having your spirit broken and having your your essence altered yeah. uh, at the whim of somebody else 
Which which is why it actually reminded me if if there's one movie that I think that it reminded me of or made me think of is one of my favorite French extreme films, which is Martyrs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see there's some definite correlations because, but that, at the same time, that's kind of a lazy uh, comparison just because they both are centered around you know a Dante circles of hell style of of uh, storytelling. But yeah, I want to I want to hear some. Oh, sorry, what's that? You look like you're going to say something. No, no, no. Oh, no. I was gonna, I was going to uh, agree with you. You were kind of saying, "Oh, that's lazy," but I don't think it is. I think that Martyrs, uh, well, not being like a you know a direct link, I think that it's a film that is aware of. I mean, it's a film with a philosophy. I always come yeah. back to that. That's. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like semi quoting Videodrome as I am often want to do. But the thing that makes things dangerous is philosophy. And Martyrs had one of those. It had a governing philosophy about why what was happening was happening. And especially when it comes to violence and agency, that is where things get dangerous. And so, yeah, no, this this is part of the lineage of, uh, I think Martyrs is part of that lineage for sure. Sorry, I have to add, um, you're talking about, well, comparing this to any other kind of shocking movie, but um, the historical context of Solo is so important. And you, you don't really get it on, on first viewing. This stuff just might have actually happened because, uh, like as Scott mentioned, this was Pasolini placed this in the um, Cello Republic, the, the puppet state of the Nazis in northern Italy. And all through the movie, you hear uh, bomber planes flying over. And so that clues you in. You're at the tail end of the Cello Republic which would have been early 1945. And it fell on April, in, in late April 1945. And this happens no matter what side you're on. And there are stories from the first, or Second World War, especially, when everything's fallen and defeat is imminent, that's when the true evil of the people involved goes off the rails. Uh, whether it was Germans on innocent people or whether it was allied forces having their way with women like uh, uh this actually happened during that pre right before the nazis surrendered it was kind of a lawlessness going on so the libertines yeah they're out for you know constant pleasure in this movie but at the same time they know the end is near and they're going to go as far as they can because they know they're going to be killed next. There, there is a the, the desperation. It's funny because they're almost past desperation at that point. I think the libertines there because they, they, I mean, in dehumanizing everybody else, like how they possibly be at the end of all of this. And there, there isn't. A, I think one of the reasons why it's easy to miss that their day may be coming very soon is I don't think that they. That even occurs to them on a human level too. It's it, it's that debased at that point, which is mm-hmm. in and of itself. I think there's there's a comment to be made there. Oh, also, sorry, one thing I did track it down. It's called Gringo: The Dangerous Life of John McAfee. Highly recommend. <laughs> Adding it. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of libertine behaviors. <laughs> yeah, shit's in. Oh god, that's insane. I don't know if this is something that would interest you guys. Uh, but I, I'm assuming it would have you have either of you guys listened to the Empire podcast with uh, Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright? No. Yeah, it just came out last week, but it's just it's just Quentin Tarantino and Edgar Wright talking movies for three hours. And uh, I don't know how you guys feel about them. I know like lots of people don't like listening to Quentin for 
obvious reasons. The guy can be a little abrasive for a lot of people, but I always enjoy listening to him, even if I disagree with a lot of the shit he says. Uh, But it is really interesting listening to them talk about just like their most memorable movie experiences. And oddly enough, Salo came up and uh, it was really, yeah, it was really interesting. And hearing Quentin Tarantino, how he, he referred to it, he's like, Salo is like if, or no, he said, Hellraiser is like if Hammer made Sallow. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and I, I really, I really like that comparison because that's also another movie that dabbles with the same, same type of, uh, the same type of conversation. And uh, that Hellraiser is a movie that I've only grown to love more and more as I've gotten older. After watching Sallow, I just see so much inspiration in other works that, like, that people were clearly inspired by this movie. And it's got to be just because it is for many, many reasons, but it's also above all else, it's just unforgettable. Like you can't scrub that shit from your head. So it's, Mm -hmm. it gets right into your veins and your psyche. And it just, it's one of those things. And once you see it, you might, you might not like that you've seen it. I think it's undeniable. Like, I mean, it is, you don't, it's the same. A lot of the films that fall under this kind of general canon, you know what I'll, I'll even go so far as to say like i mean outside of horror but like into a lot of the art house stuff in a lot of cases these are really thoughtfully made pieces of art and in a lot of cases i mean the people who make them aren't making them anticipating anticipating mass interest they're making they are making art and if you can get with it that's great but in a lot of if you can't you have to at least acknowledge uh the work and that it's not a product, it's something else. And this is, this is well, especially from Pasolini's point of view, he was very anti-consumerist. Uh, he didn't, I mean, a lot of I, a lot of that fed into this too. Like, I mean, it was even him revolting against his own product. Because again, speaking to the uh, trilogy of life, which are I, I really enjoyed and thought were great movies. But at that, just prior to his death, he had gone very sour on them because he thought that it was celebrating an innocence that ostensibly didn't exist anymore. And this film was largely in reaction to that. But he and what he was seeing happening kind of to the Italian proletariat and how the bourgeoisie were using uh, television and consumerism to kind of break down the middle class and everything like that. Like, I mean, these are huge conversations that are being had by somebody who's concerned about more than bank accounts frankly mm-hmm. and like Pasolini's preoccupations were I mean he I, I hate saying stuff like this because it sounds so over the top Eddie he was an artist and his preoccupations were such that his his work is going to continue to resonate because it's 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 very human concern and it's 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 people concern and it's it, it goes beyond like hoping he's going to have a good season at the theater or whatever. Like it, it, it's more than that. These are big philosophical conversations that are ongoing. We'll be talking about, we'll be talking about this movie, you know, until I'm dead, certainly. And when I say we, I mean, if we all bump into each other 20 years from now, we're going to be able to have a conversation about this movie and how it applies to 2041. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things too, where I, I feel like, this I I don't know because I, I for I can't think off the top of my head about a movie that predates Sallow who did that did something like this and tackled tackled the conversation in the sense that it's the type of thing that a lot of people can I'm just to entertain devil be the devil's advocate here play devil's advocate a lot of people just don't see this as entertainment and that these types of movies and these stories shouldn't be told because they'll just 
further put ideas into people's heads or uh, for other ethical reasons. I know I, I also scoff at that, but um, <laughs> like I said, playing devil's advocate. But it, it there's a there's another movie I saw recently, and it kept, it keeps on coming to mind for this. And I'm I'm going to be talking about this on a different episode. But have you guys heard of the movie Run Hide Fight? No, I don't think I have. Okay, no. so this this is a brand new 2021 movie, and it is a school shooting action movie, and action. it's oh. yeah. <laughs> So I know, I know it's like, you guys are wondering, where is he going with this? But like, uh, school, like that's one of those things that you gotta, you have a moral question, like why, why is this becoming entertainment? And, uh, I think that that movie, the reason that movie fails is because it turns it into an action movie and it turns it into something, it turns the scenario into something that it isn't. And it's not authentic to what it, what it's actually like. Like I'm thinking of movies like, uh, Henry portrait of a serial killer is a perfect example of something that you see so many depraved and disgusting things in that movie and it's not fun to watch but that's what's important about it is that it isn't fun to watch i just i guess i struggle because i'm like you know i personally feel like my morals were for the first time kind of loosely uh, they were they were bending while i was watching run hide fight because i was just like why why does this need to be entertainment but i contradict myself because i also love movies like henry and angst is another one like where that German, I believe it's German. Uh, yeah, it's German. Yeah, yeah Tyler Baptist was oh, on for that one. But then it's like, but why are those movies so? Why are these movies so controversial? When then, when it's totally okay for movies like American Sniper to exist, where it's real life th- things that actually happen. It's because I think it's because uh, some like Salo is actually more realistic. Uh, yeah. I think there's a truth to it that scares a lot of people. And and you're thinking like what might have been done before, and I I don't think anything on that level. But I, I for the longest time I equate this kind of like with a uh, Naked Lunch, Burroughs's oh. book, because both are all about uh, the corruption of power and the addiction to control. Like control and power are the most addictive, you know, drugs out there, and. Naked Lunch is equally repulsive. And so I, I see I, I see those two. I see Naked Lunch and I see Cello on the exact same level, just different media. Well, I, and I, I, you know what? I'll, I'll echo Adrian in that I think that the big difference, like why why is this uh, such a, a shock and in, in, in something that should be, you know, I mean, this film famously banned over and yeah. over again. What, what What is it that people are responding to? Look at the things that do get banned. They're all things that actually do uh, tackle or attempt to tackle truth and are looking at something deeper. Though I mean, we're not, you know, we're not, we're not banning uh, films that are like, I mean, I don't think any, I don't think any piece of art is dangerous to a thinking mind. I think that a dormant mind, any number of things can be dangerous to one of those. And the problem is the dormant mind. The problem is not the thing that we're giving it yeah. to, to deal with. Right. So, I, I mean, I don't think Henry portrait of a serial killer is ever dangerous. Uh, I th- I don't think a film like this is dangerous. I think that people it's uncomfortable. Because if you break it down to the people who are offended by it, like, I mean, we'll just go and pick some of the usual suspects, religious, right, that type of thing. Um, they are intellectually and philosophically troubled by the things that are being said, and they don't want to have to look at them because it's too much goddamn work. It's too much goddamn work to have an active mind, and people don't want to do that. And that's where that entertainment versus uh, art line gets drawn because 
and, and those are the types of people who they want to quote unquote shut your brain off and watch something, you know, just because it's been too long of a day and I don't want to think anymore. And uh, they don't want to see challenges because it uh, because it, it's too heavy to lift. And um, no one's no one's being, uh, you know, bothered by like all you and I'll use this as an example, because I think as an entertainment piece, I enjoy it. Uh, no one's being bothered by the amount of carnage in the latest John Wick movie, because it ultimately is saying absolutely nothing. It's a pure entertainment piece. And I think from a physical standpoint, like, I mean, choreography, et cetera, et cetera. Like, I mean, those movies are like, I mean, they're not without art. I don't think that they are. I think that most things aren't without art because especially when you're employing, you know, 200 plus people to make your thing, somebody cares a lot in that batch. Whether Even if the director and the actors aren't on, on point, maybe like the effects director or somebody really gives a shit about what they're doing. So, I mean, it's hard to avoid that because people want to express themselves. But like, uh, why why are why are we giving John Wick a pass when we're not, you know, when we're being offended by something like Salo, which in it, it has to, do, it's an intellectual problem for people to have to to reckon with things, and if they, especially with something like Salo, which is obscene, arguably, it's it's an easy out to say uh, people shouldn't. Uh, th- th- this could be a corrupting factor. People like in a cor- a corrupting factors in, in a lot of cases, those are actually stepping stones towards uh, freeing oneself. Having to having to you know intellectually tangle with some of this stuff is going to expand you as a human. And even if you don't agree with, with the original conceit, you've had to think about it at the very least. Yeah. And I think that there is a lot of onus on. Uh, maybe not honest, there's a lot of pressure to not think. And I think that these films challenge that notion quite entirely. And that's why the only films that are ever banned and challenged are all films that have something to say. They might not all be good. I can't think of off the top of my head, I can't think of a lot of banned films that don't have something important to say. And and also, um, movies like this scare the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. Whatever mm-hmm. the bourgeoisie might be. And the thing about Salo, these four libertines... You have a duke, you have a bishop, you have a judge, you have a president. You have all members of church and state. They're the bourgeoisie. They go through the motions as upper class. And the only way they can have, uh, the only way they could stage this crazy event is to go hide in a country palace, lock themselves in, and do this, like all this stuff away from the, the side of the public. And I think that hypocrisy scares a lot of people because how many stories have you heard of about, say, uh, a homophobic Republican or a uh, religious right wing person who winds up having, you know, these crazy, crazy illicit affairs or, or is a closeted uh, gay person or something like that? Like it, it, I, I think it it hits home a little too hard for a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, for a obviously that's what makes it have such a huge impact on cinema as a whole and makes these types of stories really stand out is being forcing people to have conversations with themselves and selves and you know that that's one of my favorite it's one of my favorite discussions to have just about movies and that's something that uh is recent because of my recent friendship with scott like over the last couple of years that we've known each other uh we always talk about the movies that like whenever we speak very passionate about something it's always something that made us really question ourselves and you know uh, like what's 
what our lives look like moving forward. It's like it, it actually it just shows how powerful cinema can be like these types of movies. I don't even know what I'm getting at. <laughs> No, I, yeah. I know exactly what you're getting, at. and actually, this is something I thought I was going to bring up much earlier, but um, it, it actually was the, at the forefront of my mind when we started talking about doing this with Adrian, is um, I think that this, to large effect, this film speaks to the same part of my brain that all extreme music, extreme art, all that stuff, it, it appeals to that same questioning nature for, for me. It, it's that... Uh, it's that why would you bother doing this? It's so unpleasant thing, but I'm constantly chasing it. And it, it does have a lot to do with, I mean, if I'm not looking to question myself and expand my own sense of the world, like, I mean, that it stops, it's the function stops making sense to me. And um, uh, it, it makes sense to me that we're having this conversation with a, uh, you know, uh, with, with you, Adrian, like, I mean, with your like wide breadth of knowledge and especially extreme music, like to me, this, this fills that same space as a lot of really extreme challenging music for me. And, and so it, it made a lot of sense that we wound, it wound up being the trio of us talking about this, this movie, because it, 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 it serves a, a very similar function to me. Yeah, it's like it's like I have a pin that says art should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And that's how I see it. And, and of course, you know, it, it's it's OK to enjoy more banal art like there, there's loads of merit in that. But uh, the provocative stuff, that's uh, uh, anything that gets you thinking is uh, all is always what I'm chasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think it's weird that we're 58 minutes into this conversation about Salo, and we haven't even mentioned that Ennio Morricone did the score for this this film. Like that's something I didn't know about going in, and I thought that was just awesome because I I love his work and the the score was beautiful in this film. The the, the soundtrack is incredible. Um, one really cool uh, thing to bring up is that during the the final torture scene, the, the circle of blood, it is scored by uh, Karl Orff's Carmina Burana. And th that it's always been kind of the kitschy side of opera. Carmina Burana has always been kind of the kitschy, uh, uh, cheesy or uh, but the Nazis embraced the bombast of it. And they would use Carmina Burana as a soundtrack to their being beard routine sessions. So uh, uh, that was deliberate on the part of Pasolini to use Karl Orff in there to uh, to connect that with the fascism element. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> That's awesome. Actually, all of Morricone's stuff, like this is outside of Salo, but like he he did all the, a lot of later Pasolini stuff and he, like his, their collaborations were always really, really great. Like I, I Morricone, it, it bothers me how much great music he made because he just, he made it look so effortless and something that's maybe even an incidental, like he will often outperform a film uh, you know, he'll be in, you know, just uh, maybe some like kind of pedestrian giallo film or something like that, where like the soundtrack is just a mat. Like I own soundtracks to movies that I don't like uh, yeah. that he did because the, the soundtrack was so bloody good. And in the film, I don't ever need to see again, but I'll listen to the soundtrack. <laughs> and then and then on the other hand of that, he, you also have like, I love how simple and um, to the point his score is for the thing like John Carpenter's the thing and he yeah. that's a prime example of him just not not overstep like he 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 didn't put anything really flashy in it it was just something that it, it 
that that score almost just it's like the jaws theme where it uh it tricks your heartbeat what else do you guys want do you have anything else you want to touch on before we close up shop here another thing about the music what i get such a huge kick out of it's bookended uh with another like cornball song oh my gosh things remind me of you and it plays over the opening credits and then it plays as the two gunmen are dancing at the end and that is so it, it, it that that music just juxtaposed with the whole movie is so scary to me uh, i it, one of the most unsettling pieces one, one of the most unsettling aspects of this movie yeah, that that totally slipped my mind like when i when i finished watching it like and that's funny so it, is it the same music at the beginning and the end is that what you're saying yes yes okay because that music at the end like it didn't feel super out of place at the beginning because I didn't know really what I was getting into or the extent of what I was getting into. But when the credits start rolling and you have that music and it's really upbeat and like kind of happy, it's like, what the <laughs> fuck is happening? Like, it's, it seems so out of place, but that's what's awesome about it too. Is like, it's, it's kind of like uh, the music in uh, ravenous is a, a movie that I really love. A can- the cannibal film. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the score for that, but it's like, so jolly and uh, upbeat and the movie's so grim and even though it is like a, it it has a comedic tone to it at at, por- at points but i love really upbeat music when things are so so grim and this movie is like maybe the maybe the maybe the best at that i don't remember the soundtrack in ravenous i haven't seen that in years that was one that i for whatever reason it didn't hit like i saw it when it came out so how many years ago is that right 20 years ago or something. Yeah, 97, I think it came out. Yeah. So, oh yeah, even more. Good Lord. I didn't like it at the time, and I've always meant to revisit it because on paper, I should like that movie. And I think I probably would. I like the cast a lot. I like everything about it on paper. Do it but again. I yeah, I'm, I, I need to revisit that one. I, maybe one final uh, a thought. Um, I just want to say, I one of my favorite things about this movie is that uh, uh, Pasolini had the audacity to put a bibliography in the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> no Hi, welcome me. to the movie. You know, lights are out. All right, we're going to watch a movie, and here's a list of reading that you have to do. Yeah, no yeah. kidding. <laughs> it, it's just a nod to his uh, literary background because he was a, a novelist and poet. And, but, oh, that, uh, make, I just that thought, makes sense. I didn't yeah, see. I, I, did, I, thought... I didn't know about any of that, but I love the opening credits of the film. It just looks like paper, like white paper, yeah. and uh, just like typing on it. it, it yeah, I, I can totally see that. I love the nerve of that. Just to uh, try to offend every last person in the building, <laughs> try to make them uncomfortable by any way. And if if it requires a uh, required re- reading list, then yeah, that's a. Do, yeah. I, I, I I'd say do it. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, I've just bottom line for me, and then I'll let Scott, you can offer some final thoughts there. I I just think that from a first experience, I the movie had a tremendous impact on me. And I think it's I think it's very important. And I'm seeing it's I'm already starting to just see its influence in cinema and how how important this movie was to a lot of people down to the point where I could be totally off on this. And I know that there's it's kind of easy to make this comparison just because of the the setting of the war. But I have Schindler's List partially fresh in my head because I, I watched it in November again. And uh, like I, I just I can't I couldn't help but feel that Spielberg had to have been somewhat influenced by this movie because the, there's no joy. 
and just the the way that he pulled you could suck the air out of the room with with how just awful all of these people are and that's kind of how you feel in schindler's list as well i've never seen it holy <laughs> shit scott <laughs> well that, is, I, I, that I should... is a masterpiece film in my opinion yeah I, I should add that spielberg does the exact same thing that pasolini does in solo in, in schindler's list where uh he leaves more more to the imagination than what's actually on screen and yeah. the implied violence and the implied atrocities is what grabs a hold of you more than say a random shooting god damn it scott watch schindler's list <laughs> you especially seen schindler's list <laughs> nope. it's a huge it's a huge undertaking because it's one of those three-hour movies but like i oh man that's it's a I, perfect I was, movie i was too busy at that era in my life going through the cult section at 49 cent video watching that watching trauma movies then so i missed like I missed schindler's list i've never seen titanic I don't. Uh, you don't got to go to Titanic. Well, see, but I, I, that's vindicating because for years and years, everyone kind of just went, eh, "You should probably see it," and now everyone's going, "Well, no, there's no real point to seeing that." No, I can't wait I until the day where people say the same thing about Avatar. Oh God, yeah, it, it's and it's <laughs> oh, we're we're about to see some crazy shit in Hollywood. I think when uh, Cameron finally starts releasing those sequels, I'm. <laughs> I'm like just excited to see how it ha how it works like how because I personally feel like he's just gonna oh I don't even know how it's it's just such a strange uh, strange time to be alive. <laughs> for, for me, one of the things I'd like to ask aloud, and this could be its own episode, so well, you know, you don't even have to answer. But to me, the big thing that I was thinking about that I was left with after watching this movie, and I'm I always am is do you guys think in any capacity a film like this gets made today? No. Because I, because I don't. But I think the no. more thing is, why not? That's, I, that's, think it's, I, I think it's a fear, uh, fear of backlash. Cancel culture, or whatever you want to call it, um, it does have its, its validity, but you need time to absorb facts or absorb content. And... If someone tried to make solo today, it wouldn't. It would be booted off the face of the planet in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. I don't think. I don't think it's at all possible just because of uh, the, the rapidity of how people digest stuff in culture today. Totally, that's a, and that's a huge part of it. It speaks to the appetite for truth. I think. I don't think we want it as a culture. Mm -hmm. I don't think that we want to have these conversations. I think that's which I think is dangerous and speaks to the conceit of the original film, but. Also, we don't like you said it would get booted off the world. It wouldn't get made in the first place. Yeah. You wouldn't be able to find the funding for it. You wouldn't be able to find people that believe in artists enough to bankroll something like a statement like this. And that to me is also very dangerous. As somebody who's a programmer at an art house movie theater, I worry all the time about not enough being said on the screen. And I feel an absence of these types of conversations. Yeah. Person. My personal thoughts on that, and that's actually something that I want to touch on today as well, so I'm happy you brought it up, but like, we're currently living in, and it's it's always been this way, There's we're sh there's a massive shroud of hypocrisy behind all of this, uh, be, uh, the way that we ingest and take in art, and I think it's, like, it's, it's one of those debates, though, where you either have to be okay with anything happening on screen and believe in the freedom of speech and people being able to 
you know, have these conversations, these difficult conversations that they might want to have with a specific audience. They're not trying to reach a wide mainstream audience, but a movie that comes to mind is, uh, I can't even remember what it's called, but do you guys remember there was like a pro-life anti-abortion movie that was coming out and everyone was throwing a yeah. big stink about it? Yeah. And I'm like, I, I don't, I do not want to see that. I don't want it. But like, who am I to say that that shouldn't, that that person shouldn't be allowed to have that conversation if we're allowed to go and watch movies like this as well? Or, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, I think I'm over my head on my own question. No, no, no. That, that feeds back into just like kind of what I was talking about earlier in terms of having a turned on brain and having a cultural literacy. All that exists, uh, a film like that, that exists to validate people who don't want to address scientific fact and it has a bunch of people who want to bolster you know their their you know religious leanings which they are trying to force on other people it does have to do there is you know it's not this them making that movie and trying to hold that movie up has a lot to do with them trying to control other people it's it's propaganda yeah salo is not trying to control anybody in any way, shape, or form. Find me the path that a film like this that's making the comments this is making are trying to control people in any way, shape, or form. The only argument you could be made is it's about taking power away from people who have too much of it. And so in terms of its function, it's having, I mean, that is a valuable conversation to my mind. The conversation that you're having with a pro-life movie is someone saying like, well, think about all of the babies. Okay, well, you know what? Your the ground that you built that foundation on is shaky in the first place, and it has a lot to do with you not like like I mean it's more complicated than I'm going to boil it down to, but I mean that has a lot to do with uh, a very particular learned thought process that is uh, it has to do with keeping the mind lazy and it, it, so it, it that is functionally damaging to society for that to exist. But I'm I'm not scared of that bad idea because I've read what I've read about all of those things. And I like to think of myself as being culturally literate enough to have an opinion on that. Whereas a lot of people who would be scared by the ideas in a film like Salo are not culturally literate enough. They don't think about these things and they don't want to think about them. They don't want to think. I'm OK thinking about abortion and weighing out what I think about it. And so when you bring me your bad idea... I'm okay with that, and I'm not scared of it. Yeah. A, a, a pro-life movie is not going to scare me, but I'll, I'll, I'll dismantle it for you if you want. Yeah. <laughs> no. I should add that um, there's a, a huge lack of critical thinking right now, mm-hmm. especially in, in North America. And what always comes with fascism is anti-intellectualism. And we're seeing a pretty strong anti-intellectualism movement right now. And uh, it, it even you could even say that people complaining that Parasite won Best Picture because they don't like to watch movies with subtitles. That falls into anti-intellectualism. And the lazier people get, the more prone they are to conspiracy. And that's sort of what we're hap- seeing happen now. I just read today that... Uh, 36% of Republican voters claim Donald Trump is the greatest president ever, which doesn't, it, it doesn't seem like much, but doing the numbers, that's like 25 million people. Yeah, so you have 25, 
25 million people who have done away with critical thinking and don't want to think for themselves. And uh, that's a, a colossal reason why solo is so important right now. No, well, I totally agree. That speaks to a point I brought up earlier about what Pasolini's intent was with this and how damaging he felt that that, you know, homogenization of thought was, you know, being brought in, you know, via the bourgeoisie and, and, and via kind of the pablum being fed to just, you know, quote unquote, regular people via television and, 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 uh, and that type of thing. Like, I mean, th 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 this piece speaks to those concerns so directly, so directly. No, well said guys. And yeah, I think with that, we can, we can kind of close this episode up and, uh, just, uh, yeah. Do you guys have any, anything to plug or is there a place where our listeners can find you online or especially Adrian? Like if you have some, if you're still writing at all or anything, that is there a place where people can check that out? Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Adrian Begrand.com. No, a Adrian Begrand. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, my Instagram's basement galaxy one, I believe. But uh, no, I think I'm going to have a great big old bowl of chocolate ice cream. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> yeah, that sounds delightful. <laughs> Good Lord. And Scott, where can people follow you on uh, Instagram? Um, I think on Instagram, I, I always mess up and use my old handle because I'm ugly Scott everywhere else. But uh, I'm uh, Scott Kenmode, so S-K-O-T-K-E-N-M-O-D-E. Uh, on Instagram, I don't, I have a, uh, I have a Twitter account. I don't understand how Twitter works though. So I don't, uh, there's nothing on there. Um, I literally don't the better. Yeah. I literally don't understand how the format works. It makes no sense <laughs> to me. It's embarrassing. Um, uh, but, uh, that, and as far as plugging anything is concerned, I think all of my work is waiting to come out. Like I said, I just got out of the studio and I guess, uh, I, well, yeah, there's no, uh, uh, for anyone who knows me via uh, my band Adeline, that's what we were doing. We were in getting the new record together, so uh, I guess look forward to that. I'm sure I'll be on the show. Yeah, like I'm... with with the rate that we work, um, I'll probably be on the show. Uh, you know, five more times before an Adeline record comes out because it always takes forever in a day. So, yeah, and like I'd mentioned before, you are the first person I've ever I've ever dubbed a a terror table hall of famer and that is because you've been on the show a bunch at this point and i can't i'm looking forward to having you on again you're one of my favorite people to talk movies with uh so i was just absolutely thrilled to have you on uh again for this week and I, it was so great finally talking to you adrian and getting to know you a little bit and i'd love to have you back multiple times oh anytime this is such a blast yeah like it's funny because like this this is fun for us to talk about a movie this this difficult uh, but maybe one of one of these times we'll we'll throw in something uh, a little anti intellectual. <laughs> part five. Yeah, I did that part five. That was arbitrary, I think. But you know. Oh gosh. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks. It was great talking to you guys, and we appreciate you being here. And thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on the Terror Table. <laughs>